Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of Loving Liberty with yours truly, Brian Hyde. A shout out to our friends listening to us on K Talk 1640 in Salt Lake City and everybody tuned in on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And to those who are catching the podcast at a later time, thank you. I'm greeting you from the past, apparently. All right, we're going to talk about truth, justice in the American way. Well, truth specifically. But man, I am, you know, I've, I've had kind of a bad taste in my mouth about certain parts of the media, and I'm talking the mass media, primarily the large television networks, for quite some time. And part of it goes back to, I remember about the time the the scales fell from my eyes, the early 90s, 92, 93, I remember how the networks ramped up their coverage and their their, um, positions for gun control. And I remember being shown how they were fudging the facts. And I took it very personally. I was like, hey, this isn't right. You guys are, you're screwing with, uh, with the public's perception in the name of, oh, no, no, we're just fair and balanced. We're, why we're just, you know, reporting the facts and that's all we're trying to do here. But no, they were trying to manipulate public opinion. And then came the GM crash test. You remember the side crash test with GM pickups? I believe Michael Gardner was the president of NBC at that NBC at that time. He had to resign in disgrace because it was shown they falsified those tests. Why, by gosh, that uh, GM pickup did explode into flames when another vehicle hit it from the side. Yes, I guess that shows how inherently unsafe GM products are. Yes. Oh, and uh, yeah, we may have rigged a uh, model rocket engine to fire off as soon as that uh, truck was hit from the side, you know, and the gas tank ruptured. Oh, well then, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's just good journalistic integrity. Since that time, I have gone through a, a, a very decided divorce from mass media. I mean, I've seen how things are reported. I saw how they reported on the Bundys at Bunkerville. I saw how they reported on Ammon Bundy and LaVoy Finnicum uh, during the wildlife, wildlife refuge occupation up in Malheur. It ain't about the truth, my friend. It's about maintaining narratives that keep the powerful in power and that marginalize anybody who would question what we're supposed to believe. And nowhere has this been more apparent now than with the revelation from uh, Veritas, uh, uh, Project Veritas, that apparently the Jeffrey Epstein story was spiked. And now we have a little bit more to go on here to show you just how far will these major news organizations, these, these mass media networks go to keep us in the dark or at least keep us off the right track. So I was looking at a couple of things. This is uh, this is from Yasher Ali, who tweeted this earlier today. I'm sorry, two days ago. ABC News execs believe they know who the former employee is who accessed footage of uh, uh, what's her name? Amy Roback expressing her frustrations about her shelved Jeffrey Epstein story. That former employee is now at CBS and ABC execs have reached out to CBS News execs. 
Apparently, ABC News said we take violations of company policy very seriously and we're pursuing all avenues to determine the source of the leak. But did you notice the use of words that they used? ABC News believes they know who the former employee is. In other words, they didn't know for sure. They do know who accessed it, but they don't know if that other if that person could have shared it with other people who may have leaked it. And ABC News says now we're conducting an investigation into the leak. CBS News wouldn't uh, comment on the story, but now in an update, two sources familiar with the matter have, have told this this blogger that CBS News has fired the staffer in question. This comes after ABC informed CBS they had determined who had accessed the footage of Amy Roback expressing her frustrations about the Epstein story. By the way, the name of the former ABC News employee who was fired by, a, by CBS News this week is Ashley Bianco. She was an associate producer for Good Morning America before leaving for CBS this morning last month. And in the past 24 hours, she's deleted her Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. Interesting. Interesting. Now, apparently, she had an interview with uh, Megyn Kelly. And I'm trying to remember, where is Megyn Kelly now? Is she, uh, is Megyn Kelly with NBC? I don't, I don't remember where she's gone. Anyway, Megyn Kelly, P- Kelly posted an interview she did with Ashley Bianco um, on her new Instagram page and YouTube channel. And apparently, this article says... It's really important to remind folks that Ashley Bianco was not fired by CBS News for leaking the footage of Amy Roback to Project Veritas. Nobody at either network knows who did that. She was fired because ABC News determined that she accessed the footage of Roback. Interesting. She's not accused of accessing the ABC News footage while she was at CBS Apparently, she was still an ABC employee. She was not fired by ABC. She left on her own. But behind all of this, do you remember there was this uh, accused pedophile? Actually, I think he was actually a convicted sex offender, a pedophile named Jeffrey Epstein. Very well connected, very wealthy. Uh, Wow. The people who flew on his jet, nicknamed the Lolita Express. Well, let's just say they were some names that uh, you would reckon you would recognize easily. Right, Bill Clinton? Sorry. A lot of other celebrities, a lot of politicians. Uh, There's even word that uh, one of the uh, members of the royal family of England was a regular visitor. Why would these networks double down and do what's called gaslighting, where you try to convince the person that you're, you're, you're lying to that, no, 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 it's all in your imagination, they just don't have it in their hearts. They don't have it in their, in their conscience to say we were wrong about this. What this means is, look, the, the truth is out there and it's important to be a truth seeker. And it's, an important, it's important to speak the truth or write the truth as best you can. But there are clearly some very powerful forces out there that are doing their best to keep us at least in the dark or at least uh, away from truths that would be inconvenient. 
And I'm not saying it would be inconvenient for us to realize that some very powerful, very highly connected people may in fact have been compromised by a serial pedophile and then been protected by the mass media, which purports to tell us all the news that we're supposed to know. But it sure looks like somebody doesn't want us poking around in in areas where we might draw the wrong kind of conclusions about these powerful people. I don't lose sleep at night, tossing and turning over how they lied to us. But that's only because I made a very conscious decision uh, several years ago to step away from mass media and just stop being a consumer of it. Now, that doesn't mean once in a while, if there's something on, I may watch, you know, if there's a newscast going on. I can tell you this, the longer you're away from it, the more blatant the spin and and the uh, advocacy and activism in their reporting becomes. The more clearly you start to see that, wow, they only report on certain things and things that can only be understood from a certain angle. They only report it from a certain angle because that's what we're supposed to believe. But the conclusion that I'm seeing here is that ABC News and quite possibly CBS News, among others, had a story about a serial pedophile who was still free, still victimizing more young women. And they spiked that story for the sake of it might reflect badly on some very rich and powerful people who might have uncomfortably close ties with the serial pedophile. Now, keep in mind, these are the same organizations that are talking about how dare someone suggest that they release the name of this so-called whistleblower who apparently thinks he heard something illegal taking place between the president and the president of Ukraine. Why, we should protect whistleblowers. We should make sure that, uh, that they are, you know, absolutely protected and affirmed because we need people like that to step up and blow the whistle when something wrong has taken place. Unless, of course, it reflects badly on some of our uh, very well-connected cohorts. And then we wouldn't want to risk losing out on an interview with Will and Kate. I mean, come on, those invitations to Buckingham Palace are probably pretty few and far between. What an interesting set of ethics. How anyone can take the mass media seriously at any level at this point is just beyond me. back to loving liberty yeah i always like to kind of get it out of my system with a good rant right at the beginning of the hour and that seemed to do the trick i feel calmer i feel more well adjusted but oh my word and you know what the jeffrey epstein memes if if there is a thing that will dominate the year 2019 in the history books and that is assuming that uh, someone other than the powers that be get to write those history books uh, it's going to be uh, that was the year that uh, we were reminded at every possible opportunity that Epstein did not kill himself. What a crazy time we live in. 
There's a great article on LouRockwell.com today called Being a Modern Heretic. And I thought this this has special application, application to our time just because if you are a person who loves truth, in fact, for that matter, if you're a person who seeks to speak or publish truth, you better get used to working and living outside of the comfort zone. It's, it's a time where truth tellers, and I mean real people who have principles, are looked at as insane. They're definitely marginalized and punished wherever possible. Were this not the case, Julian Assange would not be languishing in a prison right now for telling the truth, for doing what journalists do. Donald Jeffries, writing about being a modern heretic, says it's not easy going against the grain in any time period, in any society. But he says in our present crumbling America, it may be more difficult than ever. When you oppose both authoritarian political correctness and the all-encompassing greed that has produced an unprecedented disparity of wealth, as I do, he says, your prospects in all ways will be severely limited. Family and friends roll their eyes at best and at worst shun you. Prospective employers are not impressed. He says it's hard to enjoy anything when you're a heretic. I should have been more thrilled than I was as an old-time Washington Senators fan to see the Nationals win the World Series. While I watched more baseball than I have in many years and was happy over the victory, it was impossible to ignore the diminished level of play. And he says this is probably even more the case with professional basketball and football. Since I can't watch such, since I can't watch such a bad product in silence, I'm not a popular guest at parties. And then he asks, how does anyone watch commercials these days without becoming apoplectic? Much of the time, you can't even tell what the product is being promoted, and they are dumbed down dramatically, or they dumbed down dramatically, like the morning talk shows, which revolve exclusively around fluffy celebrity worship and cooking recipes. Wow, is that ever true? Well, he says, I recently made my annual pilgrimage to the cinema, and he says, I normally average one picture at the movies each year. That's more than enough. Going to see Joker with my son was an, was an enjoyable overall experience. Joaquin Phoenix gives a stunning performance. But he says, I couldn't help but notice that those harassing a good-looking woman on the subway were white businessmen in suits. Seriously? They were actually throwing french fries at her? Does anyone do that to attractive females? At this rate, this upholds the tradition that all superhero films, whether Batman, Spider-Man, or any other superhero, will, will never encounter a blood or a crip or a Hispanic gang in the mean streets of Gotham City or New York. See, in Hollywood, it's white skinheads or Russian gangsters who commit street crime in our urban areas. And then he asks, why doesn't some political candidate run on a platform that features a promise to rid us of those annoying automated menus, which every business and government agency feature now, or on a promise to ban traffic light cameras or abolish all toll roads? Does any citizen like these things? Wouldn't that be a winning platform? He says, going back to Hollywood, I'm the only person I know of who has criticized the absurd whispering dialogue in every film now. Combined, of course, with the blurring effects from every non-dialogue sound. What kind of filmmakers want to make the crucial conversations between characters difficult to hear? He says, maybe I ought to jump on this bandwagon and start advocating for my books to be printed in a smeared or blurry style so the readers can enjoy them in the same manner. By the way, he's on a pretty good tear here. Let's continue. Why don't people RSVP anymore? 
This has been going on for 20 years at least. Whenever we'd send out invitations to our children's birthday parties, we were amazed at how few people paid attention to the request to RSVP. Then again, how many people don't answer emails or phone messages? He says, on Facebook, I've noticed that those I sent them to have seen my messages there and yet not replied. When I asked them if they could at least extend me the courtesy of a reply, they simply ignored that as well. Now here he says, we are living in a collapsing civilization that is filled with impolite people who don't seem to have learned or remembered the very basics of civil interaction. How many people have you held a door open for in public who simply brush by you without an acknowledgement? Shouldn't saying thank you be automatic in certain situations? But then again, we're dealing with an increasing number of people walking around in public with their heads buried in their smartphones. Like zombies who seem to have forgotten that look both ways, you know, before you cross the street. Which they all were presumably taught as preschoolers. Carrying that a bit further, he says, what do you make of people who pass you by on the street or in the workplace who stare silently back when you extend a simple greeting? How do you not respond when someone says, how's it going? And Donald Jeffrey says, maybe it's just me, but an alarming number of people seem to fall into this category. The great Ambrose Bierce probably defined politeness accurately when he called it the most acceptable hypocrisy. Still, without manners, sincere or not, it's impossible to have a civil society. He says, I've commented on uh, commented before on how physically unattractive Americans are becoming. A frightening increase in the average weight of males and females of all ages, along with the popularity of tattoos and an uber-casual style of dress, has built a populace that is now largely as unpleasant to look at as they are to work or socialize with. Social justice warriors, feminism, overt favoritism, unclear rules, expectations and standards of conduct, which can predictably result in onerous punishments, have created a toxic stew which everyone has no choice but to consume. And what makes this all the more tragic and hopefully rescues it from the get off my lawn old timer mindset is that we have the wealth and the technology to create a world far better than the one baby boomers like me grew up in. He says life expectancy should be through the roof. Instead, it's actually declining now in America. We should probably have a 10 hour work week at most by this point, given artificial intelligence, scientific advances and increased productivity. Instead, most Americans have to work longer for less pay than ever before just to join the 70 plus percent existing from paycheck to paycheck. Maybe if they'd release the papers of Nikola Tesla. We'd have things like teleportation or universal free energy or those cool flying cars from the Jetsons I fantasized about as a kid. Not only should our infrastructure have been upgraded significantly over the past 60 years, we should have heated highways by now. The technology is there. Ask the one percenters who have it under their own driveways. Free Wi-Fi should be available for the masses. So should rapid mass transit. That would all be possible with a different set of priorities. Instead, our horrific leaders continue to pad their own pockets, ignite one senseless war or occupation after another, and recite platitudes about education and a strong defense. He says politicians can seemingly keep the sheeple voting for them simply by buttering them up, telling them they're the greatest people who live in the best country. He says, I think the fact that American voters return 96% or so of our wretched incumbents to office in every election alone requires a much different adjective than great. The fault lines along Donald Trump's personality have assured that this mindless partisanship based exclusively on issues that don't dramatically impact anyone's life will continue to dominate our electoral process. 
This also guarantees that the people in this country will never get any viable kind of representation from our political leaders. Now, he says, I could go on. How do I wind up sitting at a red light so often during a single commute? Has anyone analyzed how traffic lights are seemingly coordinated, coordinated not to be synchronized to increase traffic rather than make it flow better? The madness of policing for profit, asset forfeiture, the wild disparity in sentencing about our, in our injustice system. He says, my list of complaints about modern America is endless, as anyone who knows me can tell you. Now, he says, I know there are others out there who don't like what's happening, who notice all these things. But he says there's an understandable reluctance to speak out, a reasonable fear that modern heretics will wind up thrown in the water to see if they float or burned at the stake. Maybe there won't be a literal witch hunt this time. After all, he says there aren't very many of us. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sorry, but the headline hit me just as I cracked open the mic. Oh, Babylon B. <laughs> the headline, ABC asks viewers to send in evidence on Epstein so they can destroy it and then murder you. <laughs> uh, you know, the funny thing is I posted something earlier from the uh, the Babylon B. I think it had to do with uh, Kamala Harris. And uh, yeah, Kamala Harris proposes dropping kids off at school when they turn five and picking them back up when they turn 30. And there's a nice little quote here. Today, we only get like six or seven hours with your kids. It's far too little time to really turn them into, into good communists. We need at least 24 hours a day to get the desired results. And one of my friends who apparently is suffering from humor deficiency was like, come on, satire anyone? Because there were people responding going, yeah, I'm concerned. This is, this is a legit proposal Kamala Harris has put forth. And by the way, you remember what she does to parents who don't send their kids to school? Yep, puts them in jail. But it just seems like satire is becoming one of the only ways that you can can really speak the truth today. What an interesting time that we live in. Now, I'm going to take a little more serious turn here. I want to share with you an article from Brandon Smith. There are things worth fighting for and fates far worse than death. And I say this is kind of heavy because he gets down to the to the point here that I think a lot of people want to avoid, and that is you're going to have to make a choice. There is no comfortable place in which you can ride this out and safely just, well, I'm going to wait and stick my finger up in the air and see which way the wind is blowing, and whoever wins, I'll go with them. The choice is going to be forced on you at some point. Far better to know who you are and what you stand for than to wait until that moment where your back is figuratively, maybe literally, up against the wall and you're being told choose. Now, the good news in what I'm saying, even though this, this may sound kind of like a dark thing, like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, when are they going to send the dogs after us? What I'm saying is. You have the opportunity to really stand for something. And when I call it an opportunity, I think maybe I'm using the wrong word because it's really more of a privilege Look, I don't know if the, if the founding generation in their time understood the incredible privilege 
that they had to, to suffer as they did, to, to be stalwarts as they had to be, and to give to those who would follow them something that would have such an incredible impact on the lives of, of not just you know their countrymen, but millions and billions of people yet to be born all throughout the world. I'm sure they had a sense of purpose. But I'll bet that even they gravely underestimated the full impact that they were having. And I'm just trying to suggest that if if it was true in their time, it's very likely true in our time as well. That's why I think it's a good thing to stand for something. Here's how Brandon Smith puts it. He says, activism in the liberty movement often requires a painful examination of details. We look at political and economic trends. We identify inconsistencies in the mainstream narrative, point out inevitable outcomes of disaster or attempts at collectivist power, and ask who benefits. Ultimately, the analysts and activists with any sense of observation come to the same conclusion. There's a contingent of financial elites embedded within the political world and the corporate world that have a specific ideology and malicious goals. They create most geopolitical and economic crisis events using puppets in government as well as influence in central banking. They then turn the consequences of these events to their advantage. Now, he says this group is identified by their intent as well as by their associations. Their intent is utter dominance through globalism to the point that national borders are erased and all trade and governance flows through a single one world edifice that they seek to control. As Richard N. Gardner, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations under Kennedy and Johnson, and a member of the Trilateral Commission, wrote in the April 1974 issue of the Council on Foreign Relations journal Foreign Affairs, in an article titled The Hard Road to World Order, he said, quote, In short, the House of Order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than the top down. It will look like a great, booming, buzzing confusion, to use William James' famous description of reality. But an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault. Period. i got to tell you, I have been hearing that quote for more than 25 years. But it's never made more sense than when I hear it or read it again today. Brandon Smith says they want to reinvent civilization and mold it into a homogenized and highly micromanaged global hive. Within this collective, they see themselves as not only the future masters of social evolution, but also as demigods that are worshipped by the masses. And they are willing to do almost anything to achieve this endgame. In an article he wrote last year titled, Global Elitists Are Not Human. He outlined the connection between globalist ideology, globalist actions, and the psychology of narcissistic sociopaths, narcopaths, or psychopaths. And he says, I theorize that globalists are in fact a stark example of tightly organized psychopathy. In other words, like a criminal cartel or cult, they are a group of psychopaths that have unified their efforts to become more efficient predators. And like many psychopaths, they have conjured elaborate philosophical explanations for their aberrant activities, or abhorrent activities, rather, to the point that they seem to have developed their own disturbing brand of religion. Now, Brandon Smith says there comes a moment in the life of many liberty movement activists or analysts when they are confronted with this reality. 
the reality that we are not fighting a faceless system that was built passively by mistake or built in the name of mere random greed. No, the system is only an extension of a greater agenda and the weapon of a conspiratorial army. What we are really fighting, he says, are very evil people with psychopathic desires to dominate and destroy. Attempt to change the system without removing the cabal behind it, and you'll fail every time. And he points out, this is where we hit a wall of indecision. It's where we find ourselves at an impasse on solutions within the movement. And there are some people who even argue that nothing can be done. Now, he says, this, of course, is a lie. Something can indeed be done. We can fight and remove the elites from the equation entirely. In fact, he says we have no choice but to fight if we hope to retain any semblance of our sovereignty or foundational principles. But sadly, there are people in the movement with some influence who do not seem to understand the difference between fighting to survive and fighting to succeed. So he says, let me break it down a little further. The liberty movement is, cons- is obsessed with the concept of survival. We see that the globalist efforts leading to the ruin of the common man's future, and we know that the threat is very real. So we prepare. We prepare to survive, but not necessarily to prevail. Listen to what he has to say here. He says survival in itself is meaningless. There are many ways to stay alive. A person could just as easily sell out to the globalist and help them. And that person would probably have better odds of survival than I will farming my homestead as a producer and living off my preps in defiance of them. If survival alone is your goal, then you are not a liberty activist and you've missed the bigger picture. Even in the event that you can weather the storm of economic chaos or political civil war safely in an isolated retreat somewhere on a far off mountaintop, what kind of world will you be will you be coming back to when you finally have to leave that idyllic castle? What kind of world will your children be coming back to? And their children? Now, he says, I'm not dismissing. I'm certainly not dismissing the usefulness of survival culture. I'm a big proponent of it. But there are self-proclaimed survival gurus out there that are misleading the movement into thinking that survival is the final goal. And to this end, he says they have criticized people for organizing or preparing to fight the establishment. They claim it can't be done. We'll be wiped off the face of the earth. The enemy's far too strong. And what can a mere rifle do against a tank? But if survivalism requires running away and hiding like a coward from a known evil or refusing to take action for the sake of future generations, then he says, I don't want to be a survivalist. Freedom cannot be boiled down to a dream or a wish, something that might happen someday if we're able to stay alive long enough. Freedom is a responsibility that's already born into most human beings. It's not a cheesy or childish ideal. It's a timeless ideal. Freedom and the fight for peace and balance in the face of would-be emperors is an infinite battle. It never ends. The fight is freedom. Without the fight, freedom disappears. Now, he says, for each person that defies collectivists and totalitarians, even at the risk of their own life, that shadow is held back another day. This is what matters, and this is what the survival purists don't get. You have to make yourself worthy of surviving by standing for principles and values that are bigger than you are. Otherwise, he says, you're not worth a damn to anyone, even yourself. Okay, there's a little bit more to this article. I'm going to come back to it. Look, you don't have to agree with everything. I don't agree with everything he's saying there, but I agree with the gist of what he's saying, and that is you've got to be in the game. 
Complaining from the sidelines is not enough. We'll talk about that when we continue. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. By the way, phone lines are open, 801-331-8113, if you want to join the conversation. I'm sharing a, a an essay from Brandon Smith. There are some things worth fighting for, and there are fates worth far, or fates far worse, rather, than death. And I love this because uh, as, as I consider myself an activist for liberty. I really do. I, everything I do, and when I go on the air, and when I write, and even, you know, when I have opportunities to share with people... I try to do what I can to help make sound ideas popular and to help expose unsound ideas uh, for, for what they are and thereby help make them unpopular. Now, I know it sounds kind of idealistic, but uh, it's, it's something that informs every decision that I make every single day. And frankly, I believe that it's not just, you know, it's my patriotic duty to do so. I feel like I have a God-given duty. To work to 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 bless the lives of my fellow men, and in this case, you know, I'm I'm not a healer, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an artist, I'm not I'm not even so much a teacher, but I'm, I'm someone who I, I like to proclaim truth for the purpose of helping people gain their own independence, their own freedom. And I know that there are a lot of other people who do this in their own way as well. There are a lot of jobs to be done. Many hands are required. And Brandon Smith, I think, is is calling us to action in a great way. I love how he says, for each person that defies collectivists and totalitarians, even at the risk of your own life, you hold the shadow back another day. You make yourself worthy of surviving by standing for principles and values that are bigger than you are. And by the way, he says, as for the notion of the impossible mountain, the lone rebel taking on a vast globalist army, that's not delusional fantasy. And these people are not alone. There are millions of us out there getting ready and forming pockets of resistance. Now, look, that doesn't always mean, you know, militarized resistance. Sometimes it just simply means pockets of resistance that would be capable of helping one another, weathering the storms that may come with each other's help. In the meantime, he says, we fight the information war because the globalist's most powerful weapon is not a tank or even a nuclear bomb. It's propaganda. It's the ability to turn a population in on itself and cause it to self-destruct. That is more dangerous than any technological advancement or military marvel. And he says, as a longtime martial artist, he says, I've seen the biggest and most intimidating opponents toppled by clever strategy and willpower. There's no way. There's no such thing as an unbeatable man or an unbeatable army. There's always a way to prevail. And if you want some historical evidence of this, just take a look at some of the miracles that happened during the founders war against Great Britain, that war for independence, that revolution. On paper, there's no way they should have won it. But with God's help, they did. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Now, the 
started uh, taking the liberty, or taking, trying to take a more active role in the liberty movement. And um, now I'm asked, you know, why why are you doing this? Um, why why are you saying things that could put you in danger and drawing blinds? You know, where you, where you may come in confrontation with, you know, law enforcement or you know, government agents or whatever. You know, when, when you've got, you know, a family that's supporting kids to raise them. I, I thought about that. And, you know, the thing that came back to me is, um, well, the, the first thing that came to my mind when considering how to answer that question was that, John Proctor's speech um, in the Crucible shortly before he was hanged. You know, what use am I to my kids? You know, be, considering that you know my my the most important thing I can do for them is to be a good example. What use am I to them if I don't stand as as strongly as I can for the things that I understand to be true. Wow. You know, it, it may come someday to the point where, you know, I end up in prison or dead for resisting some tyrannical edict. But I would much rather have that happen and have my kids remember that their dad was not afraid to do what he knew was right, even though the powers that be said it was wrong, rather than have to explain to them why I knuckled under Wow. when push came to shove. I salute you. And I hope that I hope that more people who may be sitting on you know the fence. Well, I don't know if I want to get involved or not. I hope they'll look to your example and say that speaks to me as to why we do it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I look at them like all the Bundys or the boys Finnegan. I mean, I, I don't know any of them particularly well. I, I think I bumped into boy at Ace Hardware or something a time or two. You know, when I was growing up. And so, you know, I look at what they did, and, you know, back through history, people who, whose names were drugged through the mud for years and years, you know, immediately after whatever they did, it ended. Yep. But look at now. No, I'm, I'm with you. And I, I think the Bundys and I think Lavoie Finnegan will be vindicated by time. But right now... Uh, they are an example of this is what the government does to, to men that it cannot intimidate or cannot control. Absolutely. Well, thanks for weighing in, man. I appreciate it. I'm going to go back here and I'm going to finish up with uh, Brandon Smith's uh, essay. He says, finally, when I consider the claim made by some people that beating the elites in a direct confrontation is a pipe dream, he says, I have to ask a fundamental question. Why do these people assume we have a choice? 
He says, I've witnessed some pretty desperate attempts at silver bullet solutions to globalism in my years in the movement, from presidential election campaigns to create a system that cannot be changed from within to revolutionary cryptocurrencies that the banking elites happily invest in and then co-opt. But he says people misplace their faith in corrupt politicians and the rigged political process, even though they should know better by now. In the final analysis, he says politics is designed to keep society in stasis, frozen with inaction or fighting in the name of a false leader. And he says always when the dust when the dust settles, the elites escape blame and scrutiny while the public picks up the pieces and tries to understand just what happened. And he points out the current chaos surrounding Donald Trump is no different. It's only different in that Trump, he says, is a puppet whose job is to appeal directly to liberty activists. Which means for once we're getting recognition, but it's not the good kind. And while building alternatives to the mainstream system and removing yourself from the grid is a step in the right direction, he says this alone is only a stopgap. One day the establishment will come to take what you have. There is no way around this. Narcopaths are like ravenous parasites feeding on every last morsel of humanity. They take whatever can be taken. The real question is when they come to digest that which you hold precious, how will you respond? Is fighting back impossible or is it preferable to slavery? Is dying for a better tomorrow a fool's errand or the only errand we are put on this earth for? These are questions that need to be answered and answered soon. The time left to ponder them is running out. Now, I know that seems pretty heavy, and maybe you're kind of backing away from the radio or backing away from whatever device you're listening to this on going, whoa, this is a little bit dark. But I tell you from the bottom of my heart, I feel optimism. Because I understand where the real power lies here. And this doesn't mean, oh, it's going to be easy. Why, it'll be a cakewalk. It's not. But the biggest revolution that has to be fought and won, first and foremost, is the one in your heart and my heart. You're never going to find perfect freedom in a world such as ours. You just won't. There's no place you can go. There's no system under which you can live in which you're going to have absolute perfect freedom. That's okay. If you are a person who has chosen to live as a free man or a free woman, my friend, you have already won the most difficult battle. And best of all, your example will be a shining beacon to everyone around you that it can be done. You can find freedom in an unfree world, even in unfree circumstances. Thanks for tuning in. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.